Welcome to Grumlaw. We're going to talk a little bit more about that here in just a minute, but we're so glad that, that you decided to show up here today. Honestly, thank you for making Grumlaw a part of your week, particularly if this is your first time with us. Uh, we appreciate you giving us a chance and walking through our door. So seriously, thank you for being here as we continue, uh, as you just saw in this series right now called Guardrails. Now, this, this series uh, has gotten me really, really excited just because of the applicability that it has to every single one of our lives. And I'm confident that by this point in the series, we're entering into part four of five, that you all probably have a basic understanding of what a guardrail is. In fact, I doubt it took any of you showing up here to Grumlaw to figure that out. But just to make sure that we're on the same page, just to make sure we kind of have the same definition, here's kind of the official definition that we have given for a guardrail. It's a system, it's not just a thing, a system designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. And what we've seen throughout the series is that a guardrail is never placed inside of the danger zone, right? Because if that was the case, then the guardrail really wouldn't serve that much of a purpose. No, the whole idea of a guardrail is to place it well outside of the guardrail so that if you bump up against it, it keeps you away from all of those things that will really cause you a lot of harm. The oncoming traffic, the trees, the bridge, the cliff. And so we've been uh, asking throughout this series, is, okay, what would it look like? What would it look like if we began to place guardrails in other areas of our lives? What if we had guardrails as it relates to the amount of time that we spend on, on our phones? What if we had guardrails as it relates to what we look at on our phones? What, what if we had some guardrails in place to help us guard ourselves and our relationships, some with the opposite gender, but also you know, just with friends? What if we had some guardrails as it relates to our sexuality? In fact, what we've seen throughout the series is that in every area of our lives that we have a desire, we should probably have a guardrail. Or you could say it another way, any situation, any situation where you have a tendency to hand control over to someone or something else, you need a guardrail. And if certain lines are crossed as it relates to those desires, and come on, I don't need to tell you this, we have the potential to hurt ourselves. We have the potential to create regrets. There are oftentimes negative consequences, but, and this is really the big why behind the entire series and why this, this series is so incredibly applicable to every single one of our lives. Believe it or not, your greatest regrets, your greatest regrets could have been avoided if you would have had guardrails in place. Your greatest financial regrets, your greatest moral regrets, your greatest sexual regrets, your greatest regrets in your marriage, your greatest regrets in parenting, your greatest regrets in friendships, your greatest regrets, they could have been avoided if you would have had some guardrails in place. And so, just like a literal guardrail, is placed well outside of the danger zone. Similarly, guardrails are placed in other areas of our lives. Our money, our sexuality, our friendships, our marriage, our parenting, to keep us out of the danger zone, to keep us away from those future regrets and those future heartaches. And with all of that in mind, the kind of new definition that we have assigned for a guardrail as it relates to each one of us personally is this. It's a standard of behavior a standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience. What would it look like if we began to develop these boundaries, these guardrails that were so tied in with our conscience that upon bumping up against these things, it feels like we have done something wrong. It bothers, it irritates your conscience that when you bump up against that guardrail, the red flags are waving, the lights are blinking, reminding you, hey, if you ignore this, if you ignore this, it very well might lead you to a place that you don't want to be. You might very well end up doing something that is going to be very, very difficult to recover from. 
So the last time that I saw y'all last week, uh, I was up here and I was talking about sexual immorality. So last week we talked about sex, this week we are talking about money. How about that for back-to-back weeks? If you were here last week for the first time and you're like, all right, I'll give that another chance, you're like, I might not give that another chance, okay? It's like, so sex, money, next week we're talking about smoking crack. No, I'm just kidding, that's a joke. But that's kind of the trajectory that we're on right now. So if just in case, and boy did I set this up well, just in case you weren't here last week, you should really go online and catch yourself up at grumlaw.com slash messages. Uh, I'm serious about that. If you haven't been here for every single week of this series, again, no matter where you find yourself on this whole faith journey, the applicability of this this series, again, cannot be overstated. It really makes no difference uh, whether you are a Christian or not. I can't recommend enough. Again, go here listen or watch the messages, or as always, I say this every week, you can find us in our Grumlaw Church wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcast. So again, today we're talking about this little subject called money, and that's a good thing because people just love talking about money. In fact, all of you probably love getting advice on how to spend your money, areas that you're being wasteful, ways that you should be giving more of it away. I mean, this is stuff that we always just welcome, right? No, not so much. In fact, the opposite tends to be true. But what's so interesting, and, and I said this the very first time that we talked about money way, way early on in our existence, but it's, it's worth saying again. What's so interesting, in my world as a pastor, like 90% of the time, the vast majority of the time, when somebody comes up to me after service and they kind of tap me on the shoulder and they say, hey, can we go over there and have a conversation? Or, or I get an email from somebody that says, hey, can I just get like an hour of your time sometime this week? I'd love to just sit down and talk to you. Or I get a frantic phone call at 11 o'clock at night and just says, hey, we need to talk. Or I get that text 90% of the time, the vast majority of the time when those type of messages come through, when I get those calls, when I get those taps on the shoulder, it has to do with either sex or money. Sex or money almost every single time. In fact, right now, if I was to take a poll of the room and don't actually do this, you know, sit really still, don't give yourself away at all, just kind of straight as a board. But if I was to ask all of you, if your greatest regret in life had to do with either sex or money. And to be honest about that and raise your hand, we would see the vast majority of the hands go up in this room. In fact, and I will ask you to actually participate in this one. I want you to raise your hand right now. If you have been stressed out about money since the beginning of this year, so if money has caused you some level of stress since January of this year, go ahead and put your hand up. Come on. Look at that. We've got a lot of liars in the room and then we got about 50% honest people, right? You're not alone. So if money seems, if money seems to cause us so much stress, if money seems to be the cause of so many problems, if money seems to be the cause of so many regrets, it causes so much tension in homes, so much tension in marriages, then I think it would probably be a good idea, and I don't think many of you would necessarily disagree with me on this, but it could probably be a good idea if we set up some guardrails as it relates to money as it relates to our finances. Now, oddly enough, and this is kind of strange, the two areas of scriptural teaching that are most widely disregarded, disregarded, that are most widely rejected by our society have to do with both sex and money because the church hates sex and the church just wants my money. I I don't know how that got assigned to us, but that seems to be the overall feeling. But what's so ironic about that is, is if our world, if our culture, was to embrace just what the Bible says on those two subjects. And I realize this is a pipe dream and it's never gonna actually happen. But if our country, everybody that lived in the US of A, was to just embrace what the Bible had to say on just those two subjects on sex and money, our world would be completely transformed. There would be a cultural revolution in every positive sense of the word. 
But it's incredible the way that people think. Like, I'm not listening to that crap. The Bible's old-fashioned. That stuff's conservative, but I got a problem. Ends up being about sex or money. Now, obviously, the Bible has a ton, a ton, a ton to say about this, this subject of money. In fact, money is explicitly mentioned in Scripture 140 times. And then if you take into account words like gold, silver, wealth, riches, inheritance, debt, and poverty, we actually see that number jump to nearly 1,000. It actually becomes the second most popular subject in all of Scripture. The only thing that's actually talked about more is sin. But interestingly enough, the, the reason that scripture, the reason that, that God has so much to say on this subject of money, it doesn't actually have anything to do with money. It has everything to do with your and mine, with our devotion. It has everything to do with our devotion. Because here's what God knows about us. And it's been true about humanity from day one, and I suspect it'll always be the case. God's chief competition for my devotion and your devotion, God's chief competition for my heart, for your heart, for our hearts, has been and will always be money, stuff, wealth, possessions. It's not the devil. None of you sit at home and, and sit there and labor over, oh my gosh, should I serve God or Satan? Like, that's not a conversation going on in any of your heads. Now, whether we realize it or not, it's, it's our money, it's our stuff, it's our possessions. Now, Jesus, he had a fair amount to say on this subject. In fact, in, in his short amount of time on earth, uh, he talked about money on, on a fairly regular basis. And he, he talks about it in a lot of different occasions. But today, we're, we're going to look at this particular instance where, where Jesus starts talking a little bit on this subject of money. And we find this in the book of Matthew. Now, Matthew is the very first book of the New Testament. The Bible's kind of divided into two sections. We have the Old Testament, first half of the Bible. It's everything that happened before Jesus. And then we have the New Testament, which is the second half of the Bible. And the very first book of the New Testament, uh, that, that section, it documents Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. We have those four books there called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we're jumping into the book of Matthew again, the very, very first book of the New Testament. And this is what Jesus had to say. Remember this. I mean, this is Jesus, the Son of God. He says, no one can serve. Believe it or not, no one can serve two masters. Now, some of y'all, you're, you're already getting defensive. You're thinking, I don't have a master. I'm an American. Well, sit tight there, trick daddy. We'll see. Either you're going to hate the one and you'll love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one, and you'll despise the other. He said, you cannot serve both God and money. Now, most of us have probably never even thought about it in these terms, but he's saying, listen, you can't serve both. It is impossible. Jesus is looking at us and telling every single one of us, let me help you recognize something. There is a tension inside every single one of us. We all tend to trust and therefore be the servant of either money, wealth, possessions, however it might manifest itself in your life, or God. You're either serving and being devoted to either the God or the money. And because God loves you, not just you in broad terms, but because he loves you specifically, because God so desperately desires to have a relationship with every single person in this room, believe it or not, because God has your best interest in mind, God is more for you than you could possibly imagine. Because he wants your devotion, because he wants your undivided attention, because he desires to actually have a relationship, he wants to be your master. He knows his chief competitor will always be money and wealth and stuff are possessions. Now, in this series, we've been talking a little bit, uh, obviously, on the subject of guardrails, and it as it relates to guardrails and our finances, there's essentially two ditches as it relates to our finances. See what I did there? Ditch, guardrail, kind of a loose thing. Okay. Anyway, got pretty excited about that. All right, 
Believe it or not, we all fall into one of these two ditches. Now, again, you might never have thought about it in these tombs, but all of you are either consumers or hoarders. You, you are one of them. Now, again, we don't like to think of ourselves as consumers or hoarders because it kind of makes you sound like a weirdo, right? Like consumers, hoarder. Now, consuming, some of you guys fall in the consumer category. This is the idea that anything that comes to you, you consume. Every dollar that comes your way, you immediately turn it into new toys and cars and jet skis and additions on your home and vacation homes and shoes and clothing. I mean, as soon as that money comes your way, it is right back out the, money, the window. You are consuming it. Now, the other side of this is the hoarders. And, and nobody wants to admit to being a hoarder because immediately we think of like the, those, those television shows with those weirdos that have like millions of magazines in their homes. They got like one alley that can make it through, 87 cats, weird figurines. You get the idea. Okay, nobody wants to be a hoarder. But hoarding, it's kind of the opposite of what consuming is. Now, hoarding is the idea that anything comes to you, you, you hoard. Because your life is consumed with what if and what about. Well, what if my car breaks down? And what if we need to put on a new roof? And what if we need a new air conditioner? What if we need a new furnace? And what about this? And what if this? And what do we have to pay for our kids' college? What if they lose the scholarship? What if, what, what, what? And so you never consume. You stash it all away in case that rainy day does finally come and then you're going to be prepared because you have been hoarding. Now again, nobody likes to be a consumer and nobody certainly likes to be a hoarder. So we kind of put this easier to digest language around it. We say, no, 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 no. I'm not a consumer. I'm a spender. I'm a spender. Same thing. I'm not a hoarder. I don't have 13 cats. I'm a saver. It's like, don't get too excited, you weirdo. You're still a hoarder, okay? It's mean the exact same thing. Just because you call it save and the other one's hoard, it's, it's identical. Now, as different as this terminology seems to be, and they are, they're on opposite ends of the spectrum, the, these, these things, consuming and hoarding, actually have an incredible amount in common. Uh, they're both incredibly self-centered, and they're both fueled by the G word. Anybody want to take a stab at what the G word is? Really? Y'all are smart. Look at this. Grand Blank, Michigan. Represent greed. That's right. Greed. Now, greed is something that is almost impossible to see in the mirror. You, you never hear anyone having a conversation and saying, hey, will you pray for me? Because I'm really greedy. No. No, people say things like, hey, will you pray for me? Because I, I'm a worrier. Will you pray for me? Because I'm really just like, I, I've, I, you know, I've spent too much. You know, I've really overextended myself. Like, do that. But again, nobody would actually ever say, that I'm greedy. Now, Jesus, again, in, in, in the book that we call the Bible, he has a lot to say on the subject of greed. And I think if we kind of combined all of Jesus' teachings into just one simple statement on greed, I, I think this is kind of what we'd end up with. It's the assumption that it's all for my consumption. The assumption that it's all for my consumption. That anything that comes to me is for me. Whether you're a consumer and as soon as anything comes your way, you immediately go out and you spend it. Or you're a hoarder and anything that comes your way, you immediately save it for yourself for that, for that day down the road. Now, one of my roles as, as your pastor, if this is the place that you show up to on a regular basis, one of the roles that, that Grumlaw sh should have in your life, if, again, you call this your church home, uh, it's not to just come alongside you uh, and help you out in your marriage. It's not just to help you in, in your relationships. It isn't just to help you out spiritually, believe it or not. It's not just to help you out in parenting, but also to make sure that you get the financial part of your future right. And the key to breaking the power of greed, which is ultimately what the crux of this entire issue is, the key to actually making God your master, it's a habit. It's not a one-time decision. It's not a come forward and say this prayer. It's not follow these three steps and then, okay, then you'll get this right. No, no, no. It, it, it's a habit. It's a discipline. 
And if you get this discipline right, if you put this habit in your life, if this guardrail is standard protocol in your life, then greed will have no power in your life. It's ultimately a decision to allow God to rule your life. Because here's what God knows, and come on, you know this. God knows that if he can get your wallet, if he can get your money, then there's a really good chance that he has your heart. Because where our treasure is, there our heart will also be. Jesus taught us that. And so the key to this, it's, it's three words. It's exceedingly simple. This is the guardrail. This is the habit that we're going to encourage you to walk away with today. I mean, it's, it's so, so incredibly simple. It's this. Give, save, live. Everybody say it with me. Give, save, live. One more time with a little enthusiasm. Give, save, live. And again, it's so simple. When you get paid, when money comes your way, the very first thing that you do is you give, you percentage give some of your income away. And by doing so, you are saying, God, I am not going to be owned by the things that I own. I am not going to allow money to become my master. Now, if you only have two of these, you're like, all right, I can get behind the whole save and live thing, but the whole throwing money out the window, not for me. I'm just going to save and I'm going to live. Is, is that good enough? No, it's only a matter of time then because or again, you become owned by the things that you own that you become stressed out about money, that money, again, becomes your master. Now, I am so thankful, I'm so thankful that my dad taught me this principle from such a young age. From, from day one, I don't say this to be braggocious, I'm just telling you, I'm truly thankful for this. That from a very young age, whenever any amount of money came my way, whether it was my grandma slipping me a $10 bill, whether it was you know, the rich relative that gives you 100 bucks on your birthday, whether it was I did some you know, chores around the house and we didn't normally get allowance, but every once in a while we did something above and beyond. My dad would give us a little money. And every single one of those times, every single one of those times, before I got to just go huh, and take the money and just run out the door with it and go spend it, my dad say, up, 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 up. Give, save, live. If my grandmother handed me a $10 bill, my dad would say, come on, we're going on a field trip. And we go drive to the bank. And he turned it into 10 singles. And as a kid, that's pretty sweet, right? Because suddenly it just looks like you have more. And he said, all right, we're going to take this dollar right here, and you're going to put it in the offering bucket this week at church. You're going to take this, and you're going to give it away. And initially, i got to be honest with you, I wasn't excited about that. No seven-year-old kid wants to sit there and say, well, but, but I earned that. Grandma gave me that. No, no, no. We're going to give this to church, 10%. And they take the other dollar, and we would do this all the time. We would make these dollar, two dollar, three dollar deposits at the bank. I mean, the clerks must have thought that my dad had lost his mind. But my dad set up a savings account for every single one of his kids. And whenever I got money, we'd drive to the bank together. And we'd go and we'd deposit that money in my savings account, 10% there. And then the rest of it, I had these eight singles now. He's like, son, you can go make it rain. Go do whatever you want to do with that. That money is yours to spend. Live off of it. Have a ball. Like, that is your money to be there. But he always taught us that. Again, give 10%. And these are the same percentages that I would encourage for you. Give 10% gross, 10% safe, and then you live off of the rest. Again, I'm so thankful that my dad taught me that. Now, before we kind of look a little bit further here and see what else Jesus kind of had to say on this subject. I want to kind of dive into some of, you know, perhaps your suspicious and maybe even defensive thoughts. And, and by the way, I, I want to address that real quick too. I know that, that some of you might be carrying in some serious baggage as it relates to finances and the church. And some of you, I know this, come on, you've been burned by the church as it relates to money. And if I heard your story, I guarantee I would be sympathetic to it. And I guarantee I would sit there and think, being really vulnerable, I'd sit there, I really hope uh, that I am never associated with those knucklehead churches out there. 
Because I promise you, Grumlaw will never be that church. But it's worth diving into those kind of suspicious and defensive thoughts. Let's think about this. Why would my dad, from a very young age, I mean, literally like five years old, I'm getting money. Why was this such a staple in our home? Why, why was this something that he reinforced with all four of his children? Why would this be something that, that I'm like imploring you to do with your kids? That, that personally, that this would be a habit that you live by? Why, why would this be something that I so desperately want for every single person in this room? Well, why would my dad, who's been a pastor and you know, a Jesus follower for, for most of his life, why was this just such a non-negotiable? I mean, he's a pastor, been there for like 15 years. Now, let's kind of dive into some possibilities. Number one, maybe, and this is a possibility, maybe my dad wanted to make sure that the church got his kids' money. Like, he knew there was the racket going on, and he was just like, I don't want my kids missing out on that action, so they better put some money in there because the church is after their money, and I don't want my kids missing out. So maybe, like, okay, just put your money in there because the church, they're going to get it. Okay, that's a possibility. Number two, maybe my dad felt that, that my dollar, $2 at a time, is never very much. Maybe he felt that that money was just instrumental to the operation of the church. That, that without that money, that place was going to go under. They're going to have to, you know, they were going to have light bulbs, toilet paper, sorry about you, you know, figure that part out. Like, without that money, the church was literally going to fall apart. Or three, and, and I think this is the most likely scenario, that I think my dad, every single, you know, week after he'd preach, he'd always go into the room, you know, where, where the ushers are counting the money, and he'd pull out his duffel bag, and he'd just start scooping it in there. And he wanted to make sure that there was a little extra in there. He's like, go ahead, kids. Yeah, yeah, you got to yeah, give, give, give. Yeah, you got to get that because dad needs some more money as he ran out to his car with a duffel bag like a pirate, okay, maybe. But seriously, think about that. Why would he do this? Why was that so important in our household growing up? Why, why will this be something that I will initially force my children to do? That little Logan in that video in Malachi. It won't be an option. Initially, it's be, hey, you don't really get a say in this. You're giving 10% away, you're saving the other 10%, and then you're living off the rest. Why would we advocate that you do this? And do we really think that it's because Grumlaw is just after your money? I mean, does that seem like what we're all about here? I mean, if I had a nickel for every time that I heard that, I'd have like, I don't know, probably like $1.50. Like, wouldn't be that much, but I've heard it. No, it's because my dad knew and the same is true for every single person that is sitting in this room today that for our entire lives, the chief competitor against God will always be our stuff. It will always be our money. And my dad wanted to break that habit and keep it broken. My dad was looking forward to his future daughter-in-laws, to his future son-in-law, and going, I don't want my future son-in-law, my future daughter-in-laws competing with my kids over their stuff. I don't want my, my future grandchildren vying for time and energy with my children over their belongings, over their money. My dad never wanted his kids to be owned by the things that they own. And Grumlaw wants the same for every single one of you who are sitting here today. And give, save, live. Give, save, live is how you keep that from happening. You percentage give, save, and then you live off of the rest. We don't want any of you 
living under the bondage of consumer debt. We don't want your kids, we don't want your spouse competing with your stuff and your money and your wealth. And this, believe it or not, this is the key to financial freedom. So again, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. And again, we don't think about it in those terms, but we're serving something. He says, you're gonna hate the one, you're gonna love the other, you'll be devoted, that's kind of the key word there, you're gonna be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Again, Jesus is saying, you are going to be devoted to something. That's really the key word there. Devoted and serve actually mean the same thing. And in this context, when we pull the original Greek back, he's saying, you are going to be devoted to God and therefore serve God, or you are going to be devoted to your money and your possessions and your stuff, and therefore serve your money and your possessions and your stuff. You cannot serve, you cannot be devoted to both of them. And if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, okay, I don't really know which category that I fall into. The question you can ask yourself, the best way to tell is to look at what you do with your money. Look at what you do with your stuff. Do you own it or does it own you? Do you serve it or does it serve you? And then he continues, he says, so do not worry. He says, do not worry. Saying, what are we gonna eat? And what are we gonna drink? And what are we gonna wear? And how are we gonna pay for our mortgage? And how are we gonna pay for this new car? And how are we gonna pay for that repair? And how are we gonna pay for this unexpected medical bill? How are we gonna do this? How, 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 how? What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? He say, do not worry about money. Pieces of paper with dead guys printed on them. Don't worry about money. Jesus is saying, I don't want money to steal your peace to steal your joy, your happiness, to consume your thinking. Don't want money to be front and center in your life. Because if that's the case, then that's where your heart is and that is where your devotion will lie. So he says, do not worry. Go back, do not worry. Back, 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 back. Do not worry. But come on, we all know this. None of us like to worry, right? I doubt any of you are like, all right, I signed up for a life of worry. It's, it's killer. Like, you guys got to get behind this, right? N none of us actually like to worry. I mean, that's, we would love for, right, for, 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 for just me to say that right now. Say, do not worry. And you're all like, okay, got it. I'm not going to worry anymore. But that's obviously way easier said than done. But if we worry about money, that means that we are serving our money. And Jesus goes on to say, he says, for the pagans run after, serve, are devoted the pagans run after all these things. And what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, okay, if this is how you're living your life, if you worry about money, if you have these sleepless nights about money, if money causes you angst and stress, you're living like a pagan. And all it means to be a pagan is you're living like God doesn't exist. You're living like, like, like God isn't real. And so he's saying, if, if money keeps you up at night, if money causes you stress, if your stuff causes you stress, you're living like God doesn't exist. You're living like there is no God. You're certainly living like God doesn't care. You're certainly living like God isn't going to do anything about it, that he's not gonna intervene. And then he goes on and he finally says something that's maybe a little bit more encouraging. He says, and, and your heavenly father knows your heavenly father knows that you, need them, that you need them. All that stuff that we lay awake at night and we worry about, all those financial problems, those car repairs, the appliance that went out, your kid's college tuition, he knows. He knows. And this is really, really huge for, for all of us right here. 
Because the reason we worry, the reason that money causes us so much stress is, let's be honest, we're not sure that he knows. And worse yet, we're not sure if he's going to do anything about it. One of the most defining moments in any of our lives comes about when we wrestle with and we really decide, does God know? Does, does God care? Does he know, does he care? And when you start to shift your orientation, when you start to recognize that that is truth, that God does know, that God absolutely does care, then you can begin to shift from the worry of money and and your stuff, all that stress that's over here, and begin to shift it to God. Let me ask you something, and this is pretty simple yes or no question. Do you think that God knows that you gotta pay to put your kid through college? Do you think that he knows that, that your mortgage payment comes around every single month? Do you think he knows that, that you need that place to live? Do you think he knows that it's kind of hard to get by without a car, so you kind of need a car? Do, do, do you think that he knows that that, that thing suddenly broke and now you got to fix it? Does he know? And it's not like, okay, well, maybe he does. It's a, it's a yes or no question. Now, if you find yourself in those situations leaning towards no, then money should be front and center. It should consume your thinking. You should place it at the top of the list and you should serve your money. But, but, if you find yourself leaning towards, yes, that God does know, that God cares, then you need to give him all of it. And I don't mean like literally give him all of your money, but you need to give him control over everything. You need to trust him with everything, including including your finances. Then he wraps this up and he says, but seek first, seek first, which he's alluding to the fact that, again, something is at the top of the list. Until today, you might have never thought about it in those terms, but something is at the top of the list. And if you find yourself, again, leaning towards, yes, that God does know, that God does care, he says, okay, then this is what you need to put first. This is what needs to be at the top of your list. Go ahead, next slide there. His kingdom, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Put him front and center. Put him first. Put him at the top and all these things, the money, the wealth, the bills, the mortgages, all of that stuff will fall into its proper place. All of that stuff, as it says here, will be given to you as well. That stuff will be taken care of. But the issue is first. What are you going to put first? And this is why we're teaching. This is why we're like imploring you to live by give, save, live. Give, save, live. You give first. And when you do that, God's at the top. God becomes front and center. I promise that this is not a message about giving. This is about saying, all of us saying, that you saying personally to God, God, I don't want you for just a quick fix in my life. I I don't want you to just come and bail me out of this financial crisis. But but this, this is a complete reordering. 
This is a complete reprioritization of my life. And when people do this, they begin percentage giving. Their savings goes up and their spending goes down. And as new habits are developed, and as this new way of life is adopted, it's like clockwork every single time they look at you and they say this. They say, you know what? It's really crazy. I'm given way more. And I'm saving a lot more. And I'm more, I'm more content than I've ever been in my life. But this only happens when we put the right thing first. We percentage give, save, and we live off the rest. Friends, I want this for all of you. Like, I could, like, leap out of my skin right now. I want this for all of you so, so badly. I don't want any of you to, again, be owned by your belongings, by your money, by your wealth. But unfortunately, so few people live this way. So few people ever give God the control of this. Been a part of this church world for a while. People are ready to hand over every other part of their life, but when it comes to their finances, they stop short. And oftentimes, they never hand it over to them. And there are more excuses than there are people in this room. But I'm telling you, you can do this. This, I promise you, is literally life-changing stuff. Some of you don't think you have enough money. Others of you have somehow rationalized in your head that you have too much. But this is really, if you're a Jesus follower in the room, and this is kind of, you know, the last 10% conversation here to like really, you know, if you're a Jesus follower, this is a simple act of obedience. To not do this, and again, if you're not a Jesus follower, zone me out right now, but if you are a Jesus follower, This isn't like a, okay, pick this and do this if you so choose. No, no, no. This is a do it. This is is God saying, hey, this isn't really a choice. This is how you are supposed to live your life. This is how you are supposed to handle your finances. Give, save, live. 10, 10, 80. And if you're not doing this, what you are saying to God is you are saying, God, sit. Stay in your corner. We're treating God like a dog. We're saying, hey, I will call you when I need you. I'll call you when I need you to bail me out, when I'm on my knees and I'm begging because we're experiencing this crisis. I need you to help me then. But for the time being, sit. And I think we're all smart enough to know that he won't sit, that he's not gonna stay. Now, if you're not a Jesus follower, I would still really encourage you to live this way, whether you ever make the decision to follow Jesus or not. Because here's what I know. No human being likes laying awake at night worrying about money. Nobody likes being stressed out as it relates to their finances. And the key to breaking this, Jesus follower or not, is living by this principle of give, save, live. Now, the first time that we ever talked about money here, I I gave out this challenge and people afterwards like, did you actually mean that? Was that like a made-up thing? Or like, were you being serious? And I'm being very serious, and I'll throw it out there again. And I gotta be careful how I uh, articulate this and say this, because last time I got some feedback from people like, you're a little harsh when you kind of said that thing there. So I'm like, here's my deep breath moment here. I don't, I don't much care whether you give that 10% to Grumlaw or any of the number of millions of charitable organizations that exist around our globe. I really don't. I know that our God, the God that we talk about here on Sunday mornings, is far bigger 
than, than your financial gift to this church. Do we need those gifts? Absolutely, hear me loud and clear with that. But I know that again, God is gonna take care of this. God is bigger than a couple hundred dollars, than a couple thousand dollars. We've seen him provide in some pretty incredible ways financially as it relates to this church starting. I just want you to start giving. I just want you to begin handing over that 10%. And here's the thing that I threw out last time that people thought, okay, were you actually serious when you said that? I'll give you the same 90-day challenge that we did the first time around. If you begin today, if you begin this week, giving 10% of your gross income away, and after 90 days, you feel like, whoo, we are in trouble. Like, we, we need that money back. Like, we are in dire straits financially. Like, I wish I would not have done that. I mean, even if that's just the sentiment, you're like, I, I just wish I wouldn't have. I mean, that was stupid. Worst advice you ever gave me at a church. Like, I'm not interested in that at all. If that is your feeling after 90 days, with no shame, with no embarrassment, you can come and talk to me. You can send me an email. You can send Steph, our admin director, an email. And whether you gave that 10% here to Grumlaw or, again, any other charitable organization, we will refund you every nickel. I mean that. I, every nickel, we'll give it back. Even if you gave it to, again, some other thing halfway across the globe, we'll write the check, you show us the receipts, we'll give it back. And I say that because I'm so incredibly confident that when we finally give that component, when we give that over to God, he always shows up. He is so incredibly faithful. This is one of the hardest things to get right living in America. We could be such slaves to our money. And God's saying, come on, trust me. You've trusted me in all these other areas. It's time to give this over to me as well. If you're a Jesus follower, let's go. Let's get this right. If you're not a Jesus follower, I'm begging you to do this. Give this a shot, even if it's just for those 90 days, and watch how God shows off. Give, save, live. This is the guardrail. This is how you guard against greed. This is how you actually find true freedom and true financial contentment. This is how you truly put God in front and center, and this is how God becomes your master.